good afternoon. I hope you're all doing well. Is, uh, do you have any questions? Does someone have a question? Yes. How would you handle the problem that you're in the midst of your meditation, suddenly your body starts to move? Your body starts to move? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not, not unusual. Um, if, uh, if it's not really disturbing you or someone else, then you can just uh, let the movement happen and see if it, uh, you know, it, it might go away after a while. W- was it a really strong movement that might, was disturbing, or was it just a? Well, not disturbing. Just, just used to that way. You know, like first, your whole hip start move, mm-hmm. and your head start move, move slowly, yeah. fast, just like mm-hmm. very fast. Of course, yeah. that would disturb other people. So. Then I can use my mind to stop, and it will stop. Yeah. But if I say, okay, let the weight is, then it will start to move again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As I say, it's not unusual, and usually it will, uh, uh, it will smooth itself out and go away. It's actually uh, something that uh, seems to naturally occur as as your concentration improves. Is that the the energy, the chi starts to, uh, as it starts to build up, it causes the body to move. And if you don't need to interfere with it, it's best to just let it go ahead and uh, run its course. So, is this, uh, this happened to you just uh, this morning? Just now. Just now. Um, and did, did it just continue the whole time, or did it, uh, did it stop at some point? It was stopped. It stopped. Sooner, yeah. yeah. Well, that's the best thing to do, is just let it stop by itself. Mm-hmm. The, the other thing is that, uh, uh, it is of course, not to deliberately keep it going. Which is something, I, I need to mention that, just because sometimes people, you know, the body will start rocking or something like that, and and, and they'll they'll like it and they'll enjoy it, and then they'll, they'll just want to keep it going even past the point where it <laughs> doesn't need to happen anymore. And don't do that. Let let it go away when it's ready to go away. So, so thank you. Other questions? Yes. Trying to meditate lying down, mm-hmm. this tendency to kind of doze off. That is the problem with uh, meditating lying down. Is it, it is a lot easier to fall asleep. Is it? Is there a technique to make that less likely to make it more productive? Uh, well, the, the, there's a traditional posture to use when uh, doing a lying meditation which is to lie on your right side with your right arm supporting your head, your legs slightly bent, and, and your arm resting on your side. And uh, because, uh, because you're supporting your head with your hand, that helps to, to uh, make, make it less likely for you to fall asleep. But you can get used to meditating in any position, in any lying position. But what you have to do, of course, in a comfortable position like that, is to be very vigilant for the the, the development of dullness and drowsiness, and to take steps to remedy it. But you can over- overcome that. You can you can successfully meditate lying down. Is that the posture you see some of these uh, sculptures of the, the reclining Buddha? Yeah, yes. that's, that's also called the the uh, lion's pose. So, yes, that's exactly the one. So, <coughs> thank you. So it, as it's uh, you, you can do uh, meditation standing. 
or, or sitting or lying or walking, all four postures. Yes? I'm just wondering uh, if it's okay, just feel free to say no. That uh, Would you like to share some of your experience with us, like uh, why you become a Buddhist, uh, why, how you are uh, you know, searching for the truth, the meaning of the life, mm. how, you, how you pursue this path. It, uh, sometimes I find it's very encouraging for a teacher share his or her personal experience mm-hmm. with his disciple. Well, certainly. Um, I don't usually like talking about myself too much, but I appreciate that uh, it's something that is helpful and that, that people like to know about. Um, it was something that happened when I was uh, a teenager, an adolescent, that uh, I think first caused me to become interested in some kind of spiritual path. And uh, in a sense, it was it was becoming aware of the empty nature of things. Um, I, had, uh, I had an experience which, which was quite, quite disturbing uh, to me of becoming aware that the way that I viewed things and the way that I had learned to view things from my family and my society uh, as teachers, things like that, that this wasn't necessarily the way things really were. And of course, with no background at, at all in uh, this sort of Buddhist philosophy of emptiness, I had the feeling like, uh, as though there, there, there must be a correct way of viewing things, and that somehow I had just been uh, taught a wrong one. <laughs> <laughs> or actually, I, I did come to realize that that uh, everybody was seeing things differently. So it was more like you know, nobody really understands. Uh, the way things are, and, and we're all misleading each other and misunderstanding. And but I thought there must be some some correct way to understand things. Uh, th- this was very a very powerful experience and disturbed me in a lot of ways. And being uh, uh, in in uh, where I lived and the uh, culture that I lived in, I didn't really realize that there was any kind of spirituality other than Christianity, because that's what that's what we know in uh, uh, in this country, certainly in the parts of this country that are entirely Caucasian or European. So I read things in search of answers, but I also went to uh, uh, a Catholic. I decided to become a Catholic because, in looking at Christianity, I found that the the Catholic Church was supposedly the original Christian Church. You know, I mean, anybody who knows the history of Christianity knows that it's not that simple. But I was uh, I, I was naive and didn't know a lot, so. I thought I would find the answers to my uh, spiritual questions by joining the Catholic Church and studying Catholic theology. And I did that, and I pursued that for some time. 
And as a result of that, I uh, eventually, some years later, ended up uh, in a seminary university studying to become a priest. And uh, in the process of that, I became very disillusioned. I realized that the answers that I was looking for uh, weren't really available there. One of the most troubling things was that so much was expected to be taken on faith on the basis of authority, that this, the authority of the church, the authority of the Bible, the authority, uh, authority of teachers. Uh, and if it, the attitude is that if you don't understand it or if it doesn't make sense, then the problem is with you. And that uh, it's because you lack faith and you, and you need to accept things on faith. And there were, there were many things that I encountered in the process of, uh, of this exploration of, of uh, the possibility of becoming a priest, which created really strong disillusion and doubt in me, and deep dissatisfaction. So eventually I, I left all of that. And uh, sometime later, I discovered uh, Eastern philosophies, uh, first in the form of Indian, East Indian philosophies, what's called the Advaita Vedanta. Um, Swami Vivekananda was a teacher who wrote books, and I studied the Advaita teachings uh, through his writing. And I did find that uh, those teachings were a lot more consistent with my own, the, the understandings that I had come to um, and made more sense to me in a logical, reasonable way. But in order to realize any of those teachings, it was required to learn meditation. And I had no one to teach me, so I was trying to learn meditation from books. <laughs> wasn't too successful. And then, but I did continue to try that for some time. Uh, about two years later, some of you may be familiar with uh, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, and the Beatles made uh, Maharishi famous. And Maharishi came to the West, to Europe and to the United States, and uh, he taught transcendental meditation. And so I studied and learned that, and then finally I began to understand how to meditate. And I did that for some time, uh, and actually was uh, going to become a transcendental meditation teacher, a TM teacher. But there were, I still had, um, there were still many things that, uh, that wasn't providing answers for. And the philosophical part that I had found most satisfying was in the Vedanta, and the method of meditation taught by Maharishi did not really correspond to the Vedanta, because in the Vedanta you're doing a kind of training, the idea of which is, as they say, to discover the true nature of the self. But in order to do that, you do the research uh, uh, into your own mind, uh, trying to locate the self, trying to locate what is the self. Um, and, and I still didn't know how to do this. And then quite by accident, maybe about a year after I had been doing Transcendental Meditation, uh, I met a Buddhist teacher who was my first Buddhist teacher. And uh, what he was actually, uh, he was an Upasaka, he was not, he was not a bhikkhu. Uh, he had a group of students 
and he played an Indian instrument uh, called a surbuhar. It's like a large sitar, if you know what an East Indian sitar is. And he was playing this, uh, playing this music in uh, a, a vegetarian restaurant. Um, and he had a group of his students with him. And then when the time came for a break, instead of, uh, you know, like most musicians who are playing entertainment in a restaurant, from time for a break, you know, they go out back for a beer and a cigarette, you know. And instead, he and his students got together and they were uh, chanting uh, mantras together. I found this very interesting. But what was especially interesting to me is that at that time I was a graduate student and another graduate student was from India. He had recently gotten married. His wife had received a sitar as a wedding present and it got broken on the airplane. And so I bought it from my fellow student thinking someday I'd like to learn how to repair this and play it. And so this fellow was playing an instrument very similar. And so I approached him uh, and asked him if it would be, if, if he could possibly help me with this. So he invited me to come to the place where he lived and, uh, with his students and taught and to bring my broken sitar and that uh, he would see if we could fix it. As a result of that, I ended up going back there uh, oh, probably about twice a week and would spend several hours at a time as we worked to repair this musical instrument and he began teaching me the Dharma. And I recognized that many of the same uh, questions that I had been pursuing answers for for so long and had found some promise of being answered in the Advaita Vedanta were the questions that Buddhism was directly addressing and had uh, the methods for pursuing the answers to. And also, one of the things that I liked the very best about the Buddha's teaching as I began to learn a little bit about it was uh, when I was told that he had instructed people not to believe anything that he said or take anything that he said on faith from him because of his authority or from anyone else because of authority or because many other people believed it but only anything that was taught was to be uh, a person was to try it and test it and determine for, for themselves whether it was true and so I thought, well, this is for me. <laughs> this is the kind of thing that I'm interested in. And so I began to study meditation and Buddhism with him uh, and continued for uh, many years until uh, I, I came to have a second teacher. My teacher who was Upasaka Kemananda, and he was a student of Namjel Rinpoche. Um, which is an interesting thing because uh, Namjal Rinpoche was, before he became uh, a Tibetan Rinpoche, uh, he was a Theravadan monk who was named Ananda Bodhi. And as Ananda Bodhi, he was very successful in his practice and uh, achieved some significant attainments. And so he was sent by his monastery to England where he founded a, a meditation center in London uh, and then later on uh, he went to Scotland and founded another one there uh, which uh, uh, still exists today and I believe it uh, it started out as, as a Theravadan center but it ended up as a Tibetan center and I believe it's called Samye Ling or something like that I believe that's the correct name for it. But uh, he was still Theravadan at the time that he established that center. And then he went to Toronto and started uh, a center there and uh, 
had quite a large group of students, and he used to travel uh, and around the world with his students to different places. And so, at one point, he was traveling in uh, northern India, and uh, he, together with his students, went and visited uh, the 15th uh, Karmapa, who is the uh, leader of the uh, Kamakagyu uh, school of Tibetan Buddhism. And uh, Karmapa uh, recognized him as being the reincarnation or tulku of Namjel Rinpoche. And so he took a new ordination as a Tibetan Buddhist monk uh, from the Karmapa. And he uh, learned uh, the Tibetan teachings. And then thereafter he taught in both uh, a mixture of Theravadan and uh, Mahayana teachings. So the, my teacher, my, my first teacher who I met was one of his students, the Pasuka Kemananda, who later on moved to the city where I met him. And uh, after I had been studying with him for some time, um, I was having some trouble with the type of meditation I was doing, which was uh, the Mahasi style of Vipassana. And uh, then there was another, uh, a fellow student of my teacher, uh, who was also a student of Namjal Rinpoche, and who had uh, about seven years earlier gone to Thailand and entered a monastery there. And uh, he had studied in in Thailand and and traveled some in Burma and Sri Lanka. But he, he came back and I met him and I talked to him about the problems I was having with meditation. And he suggested that I try uh, Samatha meditation, which he described as the uh, the original, uh, much, much older and original practice of, of Buddhist meditation was Samatha and Samatha Vipassana. Uh, and so uh, I studied that with him and I immediately had much more success. And I continued to study in that particular meditation tradition and to study the Dharma with uh, the sec- my second teacher, who was, uh, he was a bhikkhu, not an Vasaka, and his name was Jodhidharma, Jodhidharma bhikkhu. And so uh, I studied for him for many years after that. Um, and as a matter of fact, uh, when Nancy and I got married, uh, I, uh, my teacher needed a place to live, and so he lived with us for the first, I uh, think, two years that we were married, which is very difficult for a new married relationship to have. So you have uh, the, the husband's teacher, who is a, 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 a Solomon Biku living in the same house. (laughs) Great experience. (laughs) Uh, A lot to be learned from that. Uh, One effect it had was uh, after a while, uh, Nancy didn't want to hear anything more about Buddhism. (laughs) Uh, So she'd heard all of these long conversations and everything where we used uh, Pali and Sanskrit words which she didn't know the meaning of. And, uh, <laughs> so. But that's the tradition that... Uh, the tradition that I came out of was actually a combination of uh, Tibetan Mahayana and Taravada. And the meditation tradition was... was uh, the very oldest of the uh, Buddhist meditation traditions, which is the combination of samatha and vipassana, and uh, the form in which I learned it, uh, borrows heavily from both the Theravadan forms and the Mahayana forms. So, for example, in this ten stages that I have outlined for you, 
Um, that is strongly influenced by uh, Kamala Shiva's uh, stages of meditation, but it also incorporates uh, much of the meditation, traditional meditation teaching that comes from uh, the Visuddhimagga of the Theravada. And so basically everything in the Dharma and everything in the meditation instruction that, that uh, I, I have learned and teach is a combination of these. It's not strictly one or the other. And what I have found, in, and I have studied the, uh, the texts of these different traditions, what I have found over and over again is that um, each has things to offer that the other lacks. And each presents things in a way that helps to understand something that is present in the other. And so the combination of the two of them provides so much more and is so much more fruitful um, both in depth of uh, understanding of the Dharma and also in the power of the practice. So, uh, and I have continued since to uh, explore more and more variety of, uh, of teachings on enlightenment and on meditation. And uh, I believe, of course, there can be only one ultimate truth. There can be one, uh, only one enlightenment, one realization that transcends the, uh, the, the particular views uh, that cause life to be as difficult and unsatisfying as it is. And I also believe that there are many different paths that can lead to this same uh, same goal. So there is not any one of them that is can be pointed to and said that this is the only path, nor any one of them that can be pointed to and said that this is the best path. Because each of them has certain virtues, uh, and each of them perhaps can. Uh, there is something that is uh, uh, of value that might be found somewhere else. So, I'm, my personal interest is to try to find the the best of all of these and bring them together. And there's a reason for that. One of the things that um, I discovered is that at the time of the Buddha, uh, there were very many people who became enlightened very easily, uh, all the way from stream winner to arahat. And in the centuries after the passing of the Buddha, we find the same thing that it was common to speak of monasteries that might have hundreds of arhats living in the same place. And there were many of these monasteries as Buddhism spread. And then there are many of the great texts of Buddhism which are said to have been written by people with very high degrees of realization of, if not arhats, uh, certainly of uh, the higher stages of the path. And then when I began to learn about Buddhism, um, and, and this was now 30, I know exactly, 37, 38 years ago, something like that. Um, and speaking to people who come back after spending years in Southeast Asia, saying that uh, there were uh, many people, many Buddhists in, in Sri Lanka and countries like that, who believed that it was no longer possible for a person to become an arhat in, in this time. And they talked about the jhanas in meditation, and it was believed, uh, some people believed it wasn't possible to achieve the jhanas anymore. And in the Tibetan tradition, um, someone you may have heard of, his name is Alan Wallace. Uh, he was a monk at one time, uh, ordained by the Dalai Lama. And uh, he, he has written and studied, but in studying the Samatha tradition 
of the uh, of the Tibetans, he uh, did a survey and asked many people, and the agreement was that very few uh, Tibetan monks uh, were able to attain samatha in this state. So I felt uh, that. Amongst other things, I felt extremely fortunate that I had the opportunity to meet a teacher who could guide me in the successful attainment of something that people thought was so difficult to achieve. But it also was very obvious to me, because there were other students who were having great success too, that that there was a problem here. First of all, there was a problem people infected with an unhealthy idea that these things couldn't be achieved, which, you know, as I uh, spoke to you, a hindrance, one very great hindrance that we can experience is skeptical doubt. And the problem with doubt is to whatever degree doubt is present in your mind, it will prevent you from achieving these things. You you really have to um, not allow your mind to be obstructed by doubt. And yet we had these things that were commonly being said in monasteries and Buddhist monasteries all over the world, which were planting seeds of doubt in the minds of practitioners and standing in their way. But also, in, uh, I came to realize that another big part of the problem was in so many places, the teaching was being given in such a rigid way, in language that wasn't the same as what people use today. And often uh, a teaching on meditation would be given by somebody who is basically uh, repeating uh, a teaching that had been uh, originally produced by somebody else hundreds of years ago. And it's just being recycled. And so it's it's not alive and it doesn't have the same power. In... um, for example, I mentioned Kamala Shila and in his teachings of the, uh, he describes nine stages of meditation, which, you know, uh, some subtle distinctions in the way he lays it out. That's all it is. But the first time I encountered the the uh, nine stages as taught by Kamala Shila, it was in a teaching by a Tibetan Lama, who had all the authority of having been properly trained. And I had been meditating for a long time. And I listened to him teach, and it didn't take very long for me to realize that he didn't have any idea what he was talking about. He'd never done the practice. (laughs) And he was saying things according to his best understanding of what the text meant. And according to his best understanding of what his teachers had told him. But who knows how many, from teacher to teacher to teacher, this had been gone gone on, being taught by people who didn't have the actual experience. And so they read the words and they think, oh, this is what that means. And they have this idea in their mind that this is what that means. And then they teach it to a student as though this is what it means. So I realized that a big part of the problem was people teaching what they didn't know. And there is a lot of that. uh, uh, You encounter it everywhere. Um, It was many years later, in in my own story, I, I... my career, I, at the time I began studying Buddhism, I was a, a graduate student in physiology. And I completed my PhD uh, and then it was time to do postdoctoral work. I became a postdoctoral fellow, but the research that I was doing involved the killing of animals. And it, this came to be a great conflict with uh, Buddhist practice. and. Uh, Uh, and keeping a precepts. And I also have to admit I became more interested in in Buddhism than I was in scientific research. (laughs) 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 
So uh, I gave up that particular career path and uh, followed a simpler one that allowed me to continue my studies more. And then uh, after spending uh, how many years? Probably about uh, 12 yeah, 12 years teaching uh, uh, neurosciences, neuroanatomy and neurophysiology. I wanted to devote myself uh, completely to, or as completely as I could, to uh, a spiritual life of, of practice and, and study. And so uh, at that time, uh, we moved from Vancouver, where I lived, to the mountains in Arizona, to a secluded location in order to be able to do that. And I had absolutely no thought at that time of teaching meditation or dharma to anyone else. But about um, about five years later, uh, there began to be people that came who uh, they wanted to, they, they asked me if I would teach them meditation. And so gradually I started teaching meditation to people more and more. And then when I, uh, somewhat reluctantly, but then when I realized that, uh, that this was something that I needed to do, that for my own practice I had, uh, for my own practice to continue, I needed to share what I had learned with other people. And so at that point I thought, well, I knew there were these retreat centers and I knew there were these teachers and there's these books about meditation. And I had sort of assumed, you know, that people were going on these retreats and they were learning to meditate as I had and being successful and everything. Um, but I, I began to learn a lot of different things. I found there were many people who had been going to retreats for many years and were still beginner meditators. People that had been meditating for 10 years had gone to 10 or 15 retreats for a week, two weeks, even a month, and they were beginners. And I was amazed at that. I couldn't believe it. How can this be? And then, uh, so it seemed like I was going to need to teach meditation. So I started getting the books, reading the books that had been written about meditation written in English by popular meditation teachers. And over and over again, I would have the experience, I would get a book, and I would start reading it, and I'd get up to, you know, some point in the book, and I'd realize, this is where this person's real experience ends, and everything he says from this point is just he's repeating something that he's heard or read somewhere else, you know. And I realized that this has been happening for hundreds of years in, in Buddhism, is that there is a separation between the practice and the study, between the, practice, the scholarly understanding of the Dharma and even the scholarly understanding of, of the practice. And when they become separated in that way, that uh, the, the teaching loses its power. And So what I see now as the important thing to happen in the world is for us all to rediscover and reinvigorate this incredible dharma, this incredible teaching that we have. Uh, Not only the original teaching of the Buddha, but all of the uh, fully enlightened masters who uh, uh, came after him who also have produced profound works of understanding. But uh, this, this needs to be recovered and it needs to be understood on the basis of practice. Because Buddhism from the very beginning was about a path and a practice. It was not about a philosophy. It was about a path and a practice. The very first teaching of the Buddha uh, after his own enlightenment, the first sutra that he taught was on the uh, Four Noble Truths, the truth of, of suffering 
and the cause of suffering, the cessation of suffering, and the path to the cessation of suffering. And if you look at this teaching, it's not there's no philosophy in it. It's all about a path. It's all about practice. And this this is where, but of course, there's the need for the understanding, for the intellectual understanding, and there's a tremendous amount of of Buddhist wisdom and uh, uh, Buddhist philosophy, uh, and it has its proper place. But it can't really be understood in uh, a separation from practice, because in separation from practice, it quickly loses its meaning and it becomes misunderstood. And my great good fortune is that I was taught practice, and then I had recourse to reading in order to understand what was happening in my practice through reading and study. Um, So uh, then I could go and I could read these texts and they would give me the explanation for what I had experienced and they would also point me the way to continue the practice. And I also had uh, a teacher who could, who had uh, his own experience. Uh, so I had the benefit of the advice of somebody who had, who had experience, who knew what they were talking about. Um, so this is, this is what we need. We need, we need practice combined with uh, the theoretical knowledge and understanding. And the other thing that we need is that from the time of the Buddha, uh, the, many different paths has developed, have developed as Buddhism spread to different places. And they all contain many virtues and they may sometimes appear to be somewhat in uh, contradiction to each other. But to the degree that they are valid paths that lead to the goal, then uh, they, they have tremendous value to offer and so today, if we can find that and perhaps uh, come to uh, an understanding of a much more direct path to awakening, it is one thing to become awakened. It's a completely different thing to help somebody else, to guide somebody else to achieve that awakening. The remarkable thing about the original Buddha is that, and it's, it's so incredibly remarkable, that he was able to do that for so very, very many people, a huge number of people. And uh, But somebody can become awakened and still not really, they only know their own path and not really even understand exactly what it was about that path that made it work for them, and therefore not be able to help a single other person. So in order for us to help each other to uh, achieve awakening, we, we have to understand and we have to learn exactly what it is about a path that makes it work and what it is about an individual that makes the elements of a path work with that particular individual so that they are successful. In a world in which uh, awakening had become comparatively rare, Ledi Sayadaw and Mahasi Sayadaw and Ajahn Chah and these people they, they learned a method uh, which uh, is very, very systematic and which helps a lot of people. The Mahasi method, which when I was first uh, taught that method, I could not practice it very well. I had, I had tremendous difficulty and tremendous frustration with it. And uh, later when I was taught a different method, I, was, I had tremendous success. Now I go back and and I I practice that again uh, and uh, have practiced that with an excellent teacher and I can understand the tremendous value of it. 
But what was remarkable about this is that uh, it was Mahasi Sayadaw who took the method that he had learned and was able to, able to lay it out in a way that was effective for other people. It's not effective for everyone, though. And, uh, but for some people, it's incredibly effective. And it has been passed down from Mahasi to Upandita, and then from Upandita to uh, a number of other people. And in those where it's been kept pure in the original form that Mahasi developed, it is uh, it can be remarkably effective. There are lay people who go into retreat, and in the course of uh, 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 a three-month retreat or a six-week retreat, even uh, will achieve uh, stream entry. But this is a very small number. Out of the huge number of people who go to the Mahasi method, there's a very tiny percentage who achieve a rapid result and a larger percentage that achieve a stream entry, but it takes a lot longer. And then a huge number of people for whom it's not the, it, it's not the method they need. It's not really, it doesn't really work for them. But I see it as a tremendous... Uh, example of a very detailed method that have followed exactly does work and does work for a lot of people. But at the same time, because it doesn't work for everyone, it shows us that if other methods uh, approached systematically in the same way can meet the needs of different people. And I know the way that I was taught, the combination of samatha and vipassana is very powerful for, uh, was very powerful for me and for the people that follow that. So I want to teach that. But more than that, I want to expand beyond that and to incorporate other approaches and teachings. Basically to come up with something that is understandable and transferable so that more and more people will succeed in the path and not only succeed but understand how their success came about well enough to be able to guide others in it. So, for as long as I live, that's what I'm working to do, to try to deepen my own understanding of how it is that these practices produce the changes, the necessary changes that they do, and then try to bring that into clearer understanding and more systematic uh, understanding so they can be repeated over and over again. Yesterday, uh, while you were uh, meditating in the afternoon, uh, I had uh, uh, some friends of mine come to visit and two of them have, uh, have significant uh, attainments to uh, higher levels of the path, you know, but by a completely different training than I have. They, they both, uh, one of them, oh, they both trained in the Mahasi method, and one of them is still so firmly adherent to the Mahasi method that he can't imagine that doing anything different than that can be anything but a mistake. But we are in this wonderful dialogue. We are in this wonderful dialogue between ourselves and with others about, you know, about the path and about what are the essential features of the insights and how they're obtained and how they're brought about. The other, uh, he achieved uh, realization initially through the Mahasi method, but subsequently has uh, discovered you know, what he says now is that I have no use for the Theravada anymore uh, because uh, it completely ignores the, the teachings of non-duality and emptiness. And he said he finds that all of my path and all of my realization now is in the non-dual awareness and, uh, and in the experience of uh, the direct experience of emptiness. 
And so it's wonderful to talk to somebody who has come from one to another and can compare and can see both the value, uh, the values and the deficiencies of these methods. So this is the kind of dialogue and exploration that I think needs to happen. Uh, Dalai Lama, who, you know, Dalai Lama is my ideal. <laughs> and uh, but he has he has brought many scientists together together with uh, uh, together with practitioners and experts in the Dharma and he's seeking to uh, combine the knowledge and understanding that comes from many different sources together. But he's also strongly encouraging scientific exploration of Buddhist practice and Buddhist meditation. And I think that this is an extremely important kind of dialogue to, you know, to the question of what is enlightenment. We have a certain kind of answer that's come down in the tradition from the masters of the past. But we need uh, we need that answer to be expanded in other ways. We need to understand what is enlightenment uh, in modern scientific terms, and we need to understand what is the nature of the changes that take place in an individual and in the mind of an individual that bring about awakening. Because uh, that's the wonderful thing about science is you can go from something that is only understood in the particular to a kind of knowledge that can be understood in the general and then uh, at the same time both applied more broadly and also applied more specifically because it can be uh, it can be tailored to differences. So we need we need the scientific exploration of what's happening. There are those people who uh, they look at, when people achieve a path attainment when they achieve one of the stages of enlightenment. They have a, a very remarkable and profound experience. Uh, subjectively, something happens and they know that something really remarkable has happened. But what is it that has happened? And what are the physical correlates of it? What's happened to the brain of that person? And how does it change? Uh, and how does that relate to the effects of what happened? You know, the question, how, uh, you could, a person, I, I think maybe we talked about this, um, how does a person know that they have uh, experienced nirvana, that they have, a, that they have achieved uh, uh, one of the paths? How do they know? And you can't go by the experience, because every person will describe it differently. And a person who hasn't had that experience will have had an extremely remarkable experience that they think is that experience. And it's very difficult to tell the difference. But the only way that you can really tell the difference for certainty is what are the changes that it produces? You know, Does it produce exactly those changes which are, in fact, the goal of the whole process? Um, does it result in the kind of wisdom that leads to the end of suffering and that leads to the arising of, of true compassion. So, so this needs to be understood from all these different perspectives, you know, and we need to go beyond the confusion that comes from different traditions. Because in the Theravada tradition, it's no self, no self, no self. You know. 
got to understand impermanence, got to understand suffering, so you can realize no self, no self, no self. And um, Mahayana and Yadveka Vedanta say non-duality, <laughs> and the Theravadins say non-duality. Bump, no self. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know they're not different. They're, they're the same thing. When there's no self, there's no duality. <laughs> and the emptiness. That's right, the emptiness, right. That's right. You know. So that's the problem with the doctrines and, and, and the words is they can hide the truth. They can hide the truth between uh, behind so much apparent knowledge. You know, the apparent the appearance of knowledge it can be the greatest obscuration of all. And uh, that has that has to be transcended. <laughs> and then why in the beginning you have this uh, you're reluctant to become a teacher you just say that in the beginning you have this reluctance well on the one hand I I didn't perceive the extent of the need. I really honestly believe that all of these people going on all of these retreats were uh, achieving results and, and becoming enlightened. And I thought that, uh, you know, that, there were, uh, uh, that we had all kinds of enlightened people in our hearts. I, I thought they were just all, all in Asia and we didn't have enough in the United States yet. But I thought they'd get here eventually. Um, that was part of it but the more important part of it the really serious part of it is uh, I had too much of what's uh, called the Hinayana attitude I was more concerned with my own continuing my own practice and continuing my own spiritual development and I saw the means of doing that as being withdrawal and retreat to go someplace where I was away from everybody, you know, and I was away from the world and away from the distractions of the world. So it was, uh, and like I say, it was, it was as a result of something that uh, I, uh, I was taught, or well, that I was told by a, a Tibetan geshe uh, that I realized that. I was at a point where I was not, my, my own spiritual path could not proceed any further unless I tried to share what I had learned. That that was the only way that I could continue to move forward. So, but before then, yeah, I, it was uh, essentially just, you know, uh, being entirely focused on. This uh, uh, the path that I was on, and I didn't think anybody else needed me or wanted me or uh, that <laughs> I had that much to contribute, and and uh, they were doing fine. <laughs> so. um, what is this combination of samatha and vipassana you referring to? Is it um, using Mahasi style vipassana at the same time as samatha mm-hmm. techniques? And also, I want to clarify um, what you mean by Mahasi style. Is that just picking an, an anchor point for your awareness and letting things uh, float up as, as they might? That's, uh, the lunch bell is going to ring very okay. soon, and that's a lot. We could continue that this evening. Let me just, once again, what, what is it you... Okay. What is what does samatha together with vipassana mean? Well, I think I should talk about this evening. Is I'll talk about the relationship between samatha and vipassana, and the different ways that they can be approached. The, there's the samatha followed by vipassana, and then the, the mahasi is an example of the uh, vipassana followed by the samatha, and then there's the vipassana and the samatha that are, are cultivated together. So these are, uh, these are the three basic approaches. And actually, as described 
by the Buddha himself in, in the sutras. And then the other thing is what actually constitutes the Mahasi method, since I, I mentioned that. And then, then I'll talk about how you practice samatha and vipassana at the same time. Okay, so we'll do that tonight. Well, then I have a question after that. But okay. It, it's almost like we need a flow chart for use of samatha and use of vipassana. But I was going to ask you um, just more on your point about scientific research <coughs> and why does it have to... Because when you describe the sages, they are measurable and observable behaviors that you are engaging to engaging to get to these stages and can you have a behavioral definition of what awakening or enlightenment is? Why does it have to be measured by physiological reactions? So I, I don't know if that's off the topic. Okay. Can you remember all of that? Yeah. <laughs> don't forget don't forget a bit of it. Okay? I don't have to remember my question, right? Because you've got that you know. Yeah, I, I think I got your question, and, and of course, if, if if I lose it between now and then, you'll you'll remind me, right? I'll remind you for the Okay, thank you. Can I have a last request at two thirty to guided meditation again? Because I have some feedback from other people; they would love 